You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning, everyone. Today, our reading is going to be from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. That's Dottie's nap time, by the way. Okay, greeting, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving and prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, and I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the dedication day today. Thank you for the work that you're doing in us all, um, that it starts now with our family here, that you speak into our lives, um, and that you have those around us who speak into our lives as well. We pray that you would just change our hearts as they need to be changed. Lord, gently guide us as needed. Um, Let us feel your love and your peace that is waiting for us. Help us to just surrender all things to you, and we thank you again for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Darcy. So uh, I see that there are a lot of people that I don't know today, but uh, quite a few that I do, even among the people that are new here. So... My name is Jay Hyatt. I'm one of the elders here. When I first chose this passage to speak on today, I had completely forgotten that today would be Palm Sunday. Also, I didn't think about it being baby dedication when we would naturally expect a lot of extra family members to come in. And it's not that you guys are intimidating me at all. It's just that this passage to me reflected something that I think is going to be good for all of us, but I was particularly meaning it for the Enclave folk because I consider it sort of a thumbnail sketch of a healthy church. And not just what's in this particular passage, but this passage is the introduction to this book, Philippians. And Philippians has a lot of memorable verses in it. It has a lot that Paul is writing to this church that he had a very good relationship with and that he loved in in practical ways. And so he's writing to them the things that are most important to him, the things that are on his heart, and the things that he wants them to carry with them. Now, Paul does that pretty much. That is, he writes the things that are important to every one of the churches that he writes to. 
But in a lot of cases, for instance, the church in Corinth, Paul is writing a lot of correction because the church in Corinth was struggling with some division that was causing a lot of fleshly behavior, that was causing a lot of um, adversarial kind of things within the fellowship that, that reduced the effectiveness of the fellowship in conforming people to the character of Jesus Christ. To the Galatians, he's also writing to correct them because they were in danger of surrendering their freedom in Jesus Christ in favor of trying to make their own righteousness through good behavior, through the law. So Paul is writing to the Philippians things that are not particularly corrective. So there's a little word of correction in there, uh, but it's only to a couple, two ladies who are having some kind of beef that we don't really know about. And he was writing to them saying, please get along. And to the church around them saying, please help these sisters get along and work together because they had been working together before in Christ and something came up and we don't know what that is, but it caused them to kind of fall out and Paul wants to correct that. That's the only kind of correction that he gives this church. And it's not to the whole church. To the church, he's asking them to come alongside these ladies to help them, encourage them to be together, to walk, to work, to live in love. And that's the important part of this whole thing. And so this introduction um, kind of gives us some, some things that refer to the rest of what he covers in the whole letter, the whole book. But who was this church, this church of the Philippians? Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, we think of a colony as sort of like uh, an offshoot of a greater kingdom that's kind of a backwater that's on much, less, much lower standing than the kingdom or empire that spawned it. But a Roman colony was different. A Roman colony was like an extension of Rome in a new area. That has uh, kind of a lot to do with, with how the church would see itself, uh, both in terms of how they saw themselves as civic citizens, but also how they would relate to their neighbors in this city. So uh, most Roman cities were, um, that, that is, most cities in the Roman Empire were cities which belonged to a client kingdom of the Roman Empire. Rome would conquer a kingdom and they would leave somebody that the locals would accept as a ruler to be in charge. And they would still have their identity. They would be uh, Israelite or Sicilian or Syrian or any of a whole bunch of other nations, but they would be subjects of Rome. Well, the colony made them actually on, a, on status with those in Rome, with people from Italy, from Rome particularly. And so being a citizen in Philippi was an important thing. Um, how Paul got to Philippi, how this church got started in the midst of this Roman city. On Paul's second missionary journey, he started out and started going through visiting the churches in Asia Minor that had been planted on his first missionary journey. And then he wanted to expand that, but something strange happened. The Holy Spirit restrained him from continuing to preach in this area that we now know as Turkey, then was called Asia or Asia Minor. But the Holy Spirit, I mean, we think the Holy Spirit is supposed to motivate us to share the gospel, right? And we think if we're being yielded to the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be 
preaching Jesus more. We're going to be sharing our testimony. We're going to be witnessing. We're going to be doing more evangelism. But the Holy Spirit restrained Paul from, from continuing to preach in Asia Minor. And so he tried to go to a different part of Asia Minor. And the Holy Spirit says no. And we don't know exactly how that worked, but we know that's what happened. And so Paul continues westward, and he winds up at a city on the very edge, the very western edge of Asia Minor called Troas. And there, so I want to kind of back up and say, I think that the fact that the Holy Spirit is saying no to his desire to preach and to spread the gospel in Asia Minor reflects the fact that there's a divine appointment waiting for him. And so God wants to lead him to a particular place at a particular time because there's a divine purpose in it. Now, Paul doesn't know what that divine purpose is. And so he may feel a little frustration, as I do, when God is saying no to something that I think is perfectly reasonable and prudent to do. But God leads him through Asia Minor without any productive preaching to this city on the western edge on the coast called Troas. And there he meets someone that we kind of know by inference at that point, Luke. The same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke and that wrote the book of Acts that we've been going through. And uh, this part is like skipping way ahead. I mean, we're in like Acts chapter 3, and uh, this is Acts chapter 16. So you'll forget all about this by the time Pastor Andrew gets there. Because we're going slow. (laughs) In a good way. So anyway, um, Paul meets Luke there, and I think that that might be a divine appointment. But that's not the only divine appointment, because while Paul's there in trust, he has a dream. He has a dream of someone dressed in Macedonian garb. Now, we don't know exactly what Macedonian garb would look like, but Paul recognized it. And from what we know of, of the cultures involved, it was probably less sophisticated than people in other areas. Macedonians were less sophisticated, at least by the estimation of the Greeks who were south of them and by the the people in Asia Minor. They would kind of look at the uh, Macedonians as sort of hillbillies. That, I think, also goes into the cultural surroundings of the church that we're going to be talking about, but... Uh, Paul sees this guy in Macedonian garb saying, come over here and preach to us. So he knows right away God's got something for him. I mean, I'm sure he felt a great sense of relief that this whole journey was not going to be in vain, that God did have a purpose in it. And he's got new traveling companions, particularly a doctor. And so maybe one of the ways that, that God had hindered Paul from speaking in Asia Minor is through illness. And you can see some reflections in his other letters that make that seem likely. But we don't have to pin that down. The point is, God had an appointment for him in Troas, and then from Troas, directed him to Macedonia, and primarily to this city, Philippi. Uh, Philippi was formed as a city, as a Roman colony, as I said, when Augustus defeated his two rivals for the throne. That was during the, the period when the Roman Empire was shifting from a republic to an empire. And there was a great battle fought between those who, who saw different forms of government, had a preference for different forms of government. And the, the winner came out 
you know, had a, a victory there. And so he established this Roman colony at Philippi. Paul comes across by boat from Asia Minor, that would be Turkey, to what is like the north of Greece, to this area of Macedonia, and to the city of Philippi through a couple of stops on the way because boats didn't go very fast in those days. But at Philippi, it doesn't appear that there's a synagogue because Paul's pattern every time he approaches the new city is to find the synagogue, to meet with the Jews and explain to them that their long-awaited Messiah is here. And yet, he doesn't go to the synagogue. So that probably means there are less than 10 adult male Jews. Now, that's not a hard and fast fact, but it's likely. And because of what we see happen in Philippi, it seems like there's probably some pretty deep anti-Semitism going on there too. So Paul shows up in Philippi, apparently no synagogue, at least he doesn't go to the synagogue. And so they go outside the city because the custom was if there's no synagogue, there's gonna be a place of prayer. And that place of prayer in this case is outside the city near the river. Paul, Paul knows the customs, the traditions of the Jews. And so he goes there to look for some believers in God. And he finds a, a lady named Lydia who is a seller of purple, who's actually from Asia, from Asia Minor. And she's living there in Philippi and very prosperous. She has a large household. And so as Paul preaches, she comes to believe in Jesus Christ. She was already a God-fearing woman. And she comes to believe in Jesus Christ and invites them to her house. So they have a base of operations in this city. Well, as Paul's going back and forth from the, her house to the place of prayer, he meets, he encounters a slave girl a slave girl who is possessed by a demon that tells the future or something that can be construed as telling the future. And because of that, she makes a lot of money for her owners. She follows Paul, crying out in a loud voice, these are servants of the Most High God who will explain to you the way of salvation. What? That sounds like free advertising, right? from a demon. <laughs> Paul doesn't like it. I'm not exactly sure why. He puts up with it for a few days, but then finally he gets really annoyed. That's exactly what it says. He gets annoyed and he turns to the girl and he says, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And the spirit leaves. Well, remember she's a slave. She has owners. And now they don't have a soothsayer. They don't have someone telling the future anymore. And they're a little bit ticked. So they grab Paul and Silas, his main preaching traveling companion, and they lead him to the rulers of the city. Now, when they get there, they accuse him, but they don't accuse them of freeing this girl from demonic oppression. That would not sound so bad, would it? Instead, they said, these men are Jews. That's the first accusation. These men are Jews and they are upsetting the city. They are teaching customs, which is not proper for us to observe as Romans. Well, I think by the lead in there, these men are Jews. The whole mob around the marketplace where the rulers of the city are gets stirred up and they grab Paul and the magistrates come out and they, the magistrates say, strip their clothes off and beat them with sticks. 
no trial, anything. And so this Roman colony should have a very high level of, of governmental restraint. They're not showing it. I think for me, that's, that's kind of a reflection of the kind of hillbilly nature coming through, but that's conjecture. Still, uh, that's what happens. So they, they beat Paul and Silas badly. And then they give them to the jailer and they put them in jail and said, keep these guys securely. So the jailer takes them into the, the deepest part of the prison and puts their feet in the stocks. They didn't have handcuffs and things like we do now, obviously. And so they put them on a, like probably a log bench with their feet up in these wooden uh, things that fasten around their ankles and they're not gonna be able to move. And that's probably not very comfortable, right? So he puts them in there, locks the door, goes out. Any kind of an official job in a Roman society was an opportunity to sort of aggrandize yourself. And so the jailer was probably not very poor, probably got the job because he was pretty well off and he used the job to get even more well off. So he has a large household and and that shows up here in the story, but uh, he probably leaves and he leaves some guards in charge of the prison, but he lives close to it because hours later, while Paul and Silas are sitting in there, And you would expect them to be pretty dejected. At least, I'm not sure how I would feel after getting beat up for doing a good deed and then being thrown in jail, not knowing what's going to happen. But Paul and Silas are praying, which seems reasonable, but they're also singing hymns. They're praising God in the face of what they're experiencing. You guys probably know this story. As they're praising God, along about midnight, God starts tapping his foot along with the hymn. And there's an earthquake. There's an earthquake that doesn't destroy the prison and bring it down on their heads. This earthquake opens the doors and it breaks the stocks. So they're sitting there in the dark, but free. Well, with the earthquake, the jailer comes out to see what's going on. The doors are standing wide open and no chains on anybody. So, oh no. See, responsibility was a big deal in the Roman Empire. And he had part of, as part of his position, the responsibility for keeping those prisoners. And if he kept them, all's well and good. His job continues. If he doesn't keep them, his life is forfeit. And if he doesn't keep them for some dishonorable reason, not only is his life forfeit, but all of his wealth would be taken away, would be confiscated by the state as a a warning, a retribution, and to keep anybody else from failing the way he did. And so in order to protect his family, he decides to kill himself, apparently. Now, this is not all fleshed out perfectly, but it is specific that he pulls out his sword, And he's about to kill himself because he sees that the doors are open and he doesn't see the prisoners, it's dark. Paul yells from inside the prison, whoa, 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 don't kill yourself. Nobody's left, we're all here. And so he comes trembling and he falls on his feet or his knees before Paul's feet. And he says, what must I do to be saved? 
Wow. So do you think that might be another divine appointment that God had in mind when he's shepherding Paul through Asia Minor and won't let him preach the gospel there? So this man takes them out of the prison, binds their wounds, takes care of them, brings them to his house, and his whole household is saved that night. And so this is the beginning of the church that we're talking about. This is the establishment, the foundation of the Philippian church. And the next morning, the magistrates are all settled down. There's no mob. And so the magistrates send word to the jailer saying, okay, let those guys go. That's done. There's no real charge against them, so let them go. Paul says, whoa. No, jailer comes to Paul saying, hey, we got the word, you're released. But Paul says, no. They dishonored us, beat us, threw us in here publicly, and now they want to come and, and, and secretly let us go and just leave that, that public impression in the, in the mind of, of the whole city? He said, no, let them come and take us out ourselves. They have beaten men who are citizens. And then the magistrates kind of panic because to have beaten a Roman citizen without a trial for no good reason I mean, it, it could be capital punishment. So if Paul wants to push this thing, he's got them over a barrel big time. So they come and they make nice and they say, please come out and, you know, we'll make restitution, but uh, would you mind leaving the city? They don't want Paul there. And so Paul goes back to Lydia's house and he talks to the church. The church has quite a few new members, right? And then... He leaves. He goes to some other cities in Macedonia. But that's how this church started. Now, Paul probably visited again on another occasion. But Paul did not spend the time there that he did at Corinth or that he did at Ephesus, where he had a much longer time to spend with the people. And so he has this relationship that sort of ignited quickly and grows deep with these people. And so when he addresses them in his letter, now he's writing this letter, Philippians, from prison, as you'll see if you want to read that letter. Uh, he addresses it at Paul and Timothy. So Timothy was one of the guys that was with Paul when Paul visited uh, Philippi the, the first time and probably a second time as well. But also, probably Timothy was taking this letter. And so Paul is introducing Timothy, mentioning him in the letter because in those days, communication was not near like it is today. So they had to rely a lot more on the people who are the messenger, not only to get the message there, but to sort of provide any explanations that go along with the message. So if anybody had any questions about this letter, Timothy's there and that's the guy they're going to ask. So Paul is introducing Timothy as, as a co-messenger, so to speak, uh, right off the bat. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so there's something curious about that right now already. See, Paul normally, if you want to like look at all his letters to the churches and sort of average them out, Paul normally introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But also normally, he's writing a letter to correct some lack of, of behavior or a problem in doctrine that is affecting that local church. And so he establishes his authority by saying an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, he doesn't bother with that. He doesn't say Paul an apostle. He just says, Paul and Timothy, 
servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi <coughs> with the overseers and deacons. Now, he also does not normally mention the overseers and deacons. I think there's a reason for that. Now, this is a bit of an inference. You don't have to see it my way. But I think that he mentions the overseers and deacons because the overseers and deacons were not a big deal in the church at Philippi. So when Paul is addressing Corinth, and we know that Corinth had a problem with personages. The people at Corinth were really fascinated by this great teacher or that great teacher, and they kind of partied up around those teachers, like divided themselves into these groups. And Paul did not want to contribute to that at all. That's not the case here in Philippi. And so he mentions specifically the overseers and the deacons, the people that he has put into place to kind of shepherd this, this congregation, these people in Philippi, all the saints in Philippi. So one of the things that I think is a mark of a healthy church is when the leadership is in place. It's known and understood, but it's not that big a deal. Like, I think that there's almost an automatic problem if you have a celebrity pastor. Now, I don't know what church a lot of you guys come from and and how you look at your pastor and things like that. And I hope you love them. But with churches that have a celebrity pastor, it's so easy to shift the focus from Jesus Christ to the giftedness of this individual. And that is an inherently unhealthy thing to happen. So he goes on, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's two verses And so far, we have Jesus Christ mentioned three times. That's something that you will see through this whole book again and again and again. One of the things that that Paul is repeating again and again is Jesus Christ. So if we think of a church as the body of Christ like it is, who's the head of the body? I'm actually asking. Jesus Christ, right? Now, If a body is healthy, how firm is the connection between the head and the body? It's got to be good, right? It's got to be strong. So Jesus Christ is super important. I, I I know that sounds like so redundant. Jesus Christ is super important for a church to be a healthy church. But I mean, for the focus to be on him not just for him to be in the name of the church, but for the focus to actually be on him. That's crucial for a church to be a healthy church. And if he is the focus, then his character is going to bleed out into the church. And one of his chief characteristics that is referred to in this book is his humility. How Jesus gave up his place in heaven, his divine power came to earth, humbled himself, taking on the form of a man, first of all, being born as a baby, but then taking on the, as a man, the form of a servant. He served his disciples. He washed their feet, becoming obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. And that was the worst kind of death you could experience in the Roman empire. And it may be the worst kind of death you can experience anytime, anywhere, 
But Jesus humbled himself to the point of experiencing death on a cross for our behalf. That is a a level of humility that we cannot even get our minds around. And if Jesus Christ is our focus, then we're going to have a similar humility in the way we deal with each other. And if we have that humility, then we are freed to bless each other rather than trying to obtain a blessing from each other. And that is another characteristic of a healthy church. So through this this opening, what Paul is doing is affirming this church again and again. So a few months ago, when Brad was sharing with us, he shared some of his life and he shared some scripture. One of the scriptures that he shared was right here in 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking to them out of hope. He's at, but before that, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Joy. So we've got joy and we've got hope because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all. So how does Paul feel about them? Anybody? Love. Paul loves these people. Even though he didn't spend that long with them, he loves them and they know it. They have become his partners in ministry. They were one of the few churches that gave him resources to continue his missionary journey. They were supporting him as a missionary when very few other churches did. Most churches tend to have sort of a, uh, like when they're planted, when they're first planted, they tend to have sort of a client mentality like, like oh, uh, you know, we're, we're young, we got to grow. And so we need, but this church established as it was even under difficult circumstances in the face of an unjust persecution right off the bat, this church is overflowing in the desire to participate in the work of the gospel through Paul's ministry. And so from the beginning, they were, they were helping him in ministry and they sent him off, even though he had only been there a short time, they sent him off with money to continue his journey. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so the gospel continued when Paul wasn't there because of the spark that had been lit, because of the process that had been begun in these disciples who were following him. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he knows that they have love. And he's urging them to continue in that love, that it may abound with knowledge, with discernment. So not foolishly, nothing that would impair that love down the road by behaving in, a, in an inappropriate way, or that would be causing them to be distracted from Jesus Christ. And he wants that love to abound so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, for the day of Christ, because the day of Christ is coming. Paul lived as though the day of Christ was imminent. 
And I think that that's how we should live, regardless of what we think about prophetic words about the end times, regardless of where we think we are in world history. We should live with an expectation of the soon return of Jesus Christ and that he is going to, at some point, judge us. Not, not the judgment of uh, making it or not, but evaluating our lives here. What did our faith in him mean? How did our faith in him change us? Did it make us self-righteous? Whoa, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That sounds like his opponents, the Pharisees. Did it make us uh, complacent and licentious, just hungry for every comforting experience and sensual pleasure? That doesn't sound like Jesus Christ either. Or does it make us more loving, more kind, wanting to encourage people, to help people? If it does, then you can see for yourself how Jesus is going to evaluate on that day. You'll have the evidence already. It's not like a, a surprise quiz. If we have the, the manifestation now of the fruit of the Spirit in us, then we know that we'll be approved, even as Jesus Christ has already been approved. The fruit of the Spirit is what determines whether or not we're actually made alive by the Holy Spirit rather than the gifts of the Spirit. Now, we've been talking as a congregation a lot about the, the gifts of the Spirit lately, and I don't want to minimize that. In fact, like uh, on the elders, I'm probably the one that's more charismatically inclined, at least in terms of conviction. But I always want to reinforce, whenever we talk about gifts of the Spirit, I always want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is how you can see what is going on on the inside. And the fruit of the Spirit all boils down to love. And if it's hard for us to get a handle on love, of course, Paul gave us 1 Corinthians 13 to give a, a thorough description of love, but he also puts it in there with the fruit of the Spirit. So you can just look at the fruit of the Spirit, those nine different traits that he identifies, and see how love is reflected in each one of those things as well. And so this church was filled with the Spirit, even though in this letter, Paul seldom talks about the Holy Spirit. So we mentioned, you know, that like right off the bat, first couple of verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned by name three times, and that goes on through the book. The Holy Spirit, just as the Spirit, the phrase the Holy Spirit isn't in there, but the phrase the Spirit is mentioned four times in the whole letter. So it's not the, that Paul's ignoring the Spirit, it's just the Spirit is not the focus. And so what the Spirit does through us isn't the focus as much as what the Spirit does in us, in conforming us to the character of Jesus Christ. So Paul's um, opening address, his introduction to this letter continues that, that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul was confident that that's what's working in this 
congregation, in this fellowship. And that's what makes them healthy. So in a human body, we have a head. That's the seat, particularly of the neurological system that, that activates, directs, motivates our body. Then we also have to have a skeleton, right? We're not jellyfish, so we've got to have a skeleton. Now, the skeleton is how I see the, the structure of the church, elders, deacons, any other offices that are part of the church. And the interesting thing about the skeleton is that everybody here has one. But we can't see them, right? You can't see my skeleton. It's covered up by skin and fat. Okay, well, yeah, so uh, what does a healthy body need? A healthy body should maybe have a little more muscle than fat, but um, muscle, you need protein, right? But what, in terms of your diet, what is the thing that everybody, a health, every healthy body particularly, needs more than any other thing in your diet? Water? Water's good. Water's a symbol of what? Life, the Holy Spirit, maybe? After water, in terms of the food that you eat, what's most? What's most? Vitamins? Uh, okay. Okay, now we got some good, knowledgeable answers in terms of, of a healthy diet. But vitamins and protein are a little far down the list from calories. Now, I know, I get too many calories. And so we start to thinking that calories are a bad thing, but they're not. It's just that we live in such a wealthy society that calories are cheap and we can get bunches of them. But every one of us actually needs more calories than we need protein. We need more calories than we need vitamins. Now, we've got to have vitamins and protein, minerals, and a whole bunch of other things, but those are, by and large, considered micronutrients. We need a small amount of those things. And too much of those things can actually be pretty harmful for us. Did you know that salt is very important? NACL. It's actually very important to your body. But, again, here in the West, because salt tastes good, we get too much of it. But if you had to do without salt, it would affect you physically and drastically. So it's the same thing with calories. We have too much opportunity to get calories, but we actually need them. So in the context of this, examining what a healthy church looks like, I'm thinking, what is equivalent to calories? Calories and salt tend to taste good. And what is good, what tastes good, in our interactions with each other. Affirmation and encouragement. And so one of the things that I think that we need a lot more in every fellowship is affirmation and encouragement. We need to be looking at other people and saying, where are they at? What do they need to hear today? Not what are they thinking of me, but looking at them, where are they at? Is there some way that I could encourage them? Can I maybe just pray for them? 
That can be very encouraging. For somebody just to know that you're thinking about them can be very encouraging. To speak a genuine word of affirmation, like when Brad was, was preaching, he, he said we should write a note to someone that, we, that has been significant in our lives, write a note expressing our appreciation for that. A little word of affirmation for somebody that has made any kind of a difference to you, even if it's, it seems like kind of a minor thing, to write a genuine, meaningful word of affirmation or to go up and speak to somebody in this congregation is a hugely important thing in most of our lives. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we need more and more in our fellowships. I think we're getting good Bible teaching, and that's what I consider protein. That's the meat, right? When we're getting Bible teaching, that's meat, and that's going to build muscle. And the muscle is to do work, and muscles have to work with and, direct, and, and actually limited by also because that helps focus it by the skeleton. But the energy to do that has to come from calories. And in this, I'm equating calories with the encouragement that we can offer each other in the context of being known and knowing each other. So if you'll accept that word today, then I pray that God will implement it into your life in a way that builds his body for his glory and for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. My King and my God, thank you for all you have done. Thank you for the victory that you have won. Thank you for your humble presentation of yourself as King. May it be a model for us. May we honor you in our hearts. May we glorify you in the things that we do and in the things that we say. May we learn to approve those things that are excellent. And may we be less critical, less fault-finding. May we be people who are molded by your hands, but enlivened by your spirit. And may we see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.